Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. If your Bibles, turn with me again to our text from last two weeks, Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Anybody want to read that for us tonight? Thank you, Dan. This is our third week on this particular topic, the call of Christ. It's part of our study of the Godhead. And uh, certainly we've heard this verse now three weeks in a row. But how many had heard this verse before we started this study? We all have. We're very familiar with it. We've heard it for years. Uh, even one of our hymns uh, refers to part of this particular verse. And uh, my question is, uh, do you see an invitation here? And who's it from? It's from Jesus. Who's it for? Everyone, okay? It is for everyone. And so, is something wrong, Jason? Oh, didn't know if I had my mic on or not. But anyway, uh, we certainly love the invitation. But in these verses, and we appreciate the invitation, but there's also a qualification there. Things we must do if we're going to find rest. Now, again, all are invited to come. But the only ones who are going to find that rest that Jesus promises are the ones who meet the qualifications. Now, again, it's not we earn that. It's, you know, being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we realize, uh, he says, uh, all that labor, heavy uh, laden, he said, I will give you rest. But it's interesting, that's the conditional promise. That is a conditional promise. And the danger is thinking it's unconditional because there's conditions that we have to meet because there's no way we can obtain that rest if we do not uh, take his yoke upon us. And if we don't learn of him, we will never find that rest. So come unto me, I will give you rest. And then he says, at the end of it, we will find rest for our soul. And we mentioned this, I think, even the first week of our study on this. Uh, first of all, we see a divine invitation. Uh, God is the one who gives, Jesus gives the invitation. But guess whose responsibility it is to find that rest? It is ours, okay? So please understand, I, I mentioned this quite a few times, but uh, there's a fellow on the radio I used to listen to uh, when his program was on uh, pretty well every day. And now he only had like a two-minute sound bite every day, just about. But Steve Brown, somebody wrote into him and uh, about free will and uh, predestination or God's sovereignty. And uh, they had the question was, how do you put them together? He said, you can't, but it's in the Bible. And so we know the sovereignty of God, but we also that we have responsibility as human beings. So God gives the invitation, Christ gives the invitation, but we have a responsibility uh, to do what God asks us to do. Now, keep in mind, that rest is freely given to all who meet those requirements. Now, last week, we started to look at the context. We're not going to go spend a lot of time. We're just going to review it real quick because, again, it's very important in your Bible study when you're studying any verse to understand the context of that verse, you know, who was writing it, what was going on around it, and almost all the time, now, please understand that we have 
Uh, you know, we're in Matthew 11, we're in verses 28 through 30, and I'm, for one, I'm glad for that. But how many know that when this was written, there were no verses? There were not, okay? This is one continuous thought. Now, I'm glad there are verses, make it easy for us to find, but nonetheless, we, we can't lose sight that every verse is connected one to another. So Matthew chapter 11, it begins with John the Baptist. He's been thrown into prison, and if we find in the first few verses, verses 2 and 3, that John had a concern. Was Christ the one, or should we look for another? And, of course, we, we would think, wow, why would John even doubt? But in verses 7 through 15, Jesus vindicates John the Baptist. He, in fact, he says, among men born among women, uh, there's no greater than John the Baptist. So, again, uh, Christ did not ridicule him, did not put him down. In fact, he praised him for being who he was. And then in verse 16 through 19, uh, Jesus reproves those uh, who uh, enjoyed his ministry and John's ministry. Now, again, uh, John was sent from God to prepare the way, and both of them had uh, a tremendous ministry uh, in the early beginning of the century. But yet, uh, he reproved those who said, you know, you've heard John preach, you have heard me preach. And then in verses uh, 16 through 19, he talks about uh, that cynical uh generation that lived there, and the problem was, uh, no matter what he said or did, what was their reaction? What was their reaction? Do you what now? Yeah. Yeah. So what, you know? What about John? <laughs> Same way, okay? And it's interesting. Uh, they were cynical. They were skeptical. And the problem was, John the Baptist came preaching, come as you are, and we'll love you to death, and we'll accept you, and you don't need to repent. Is that, was that John the Baptist? No. He invaded their comfort zone. And, of course, Jesus did the same thing. So they were cynical. Uh, they were skeptical because John and Jesus both uh, challenged their uh, comfortable, secure self and centered life. And the, pot, the problem is this. You know, uh, they didn't like John, and they didn't like Jesus. Now, by the way... Uh, we, we must not forget, they, they preached similar message, of course, repentance. And uh, they didn't like that. And, and, and keep in mind, uh, they thought John was demon-possessed. And they accused Christ of being a wine-bibber and a glutton. And I think I might have mentioned this, but just in case I didn't, uh, you remember the time uh, when the, the Pharisees came to ask Jesus a question? I, that question has slipped my mind right now, but he said, let me ask you one. If you'll answer my question, I'll answer yours. He said, what about John? Was he from God or not? And what was the Pharisee's dilemma? Absolutely. He could, they were, you know, they, they, now first of all, I, I think it's true. They didn't think he was from God. But they weren't going to say that. They were, they were good politicians, right? And, and so they said, you know what, if we, if we say, uh, he's not from God, man, those folks are going to stone us, uh, those followers we have. And if we say he is from God, Christ will want to know why they wouldn't follow him. So kind of the dilemma they were in. But the bottom line was this. They didn't like John, and they simply didn't like Jesus. So beginning in verse 20 through 24, so one of the most serious patches in all the Word of God uh, from, the, from Jesus Christ. He addresses uh, three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. We talked about this last week. We're not going to read it again. 
But these, this was the area where he did most of his mighty works. And the problem was, he confronts them because they refused to repent. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and the story goes that uh, the rich man died and went to hell, Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man said, send somebody back, send Lazarus back to tell them not to come to this awful place, and they'll believe him. Would that have been true? No. They didn't believe it in John's day. They didn't believe it in Jesus' day. And these cities saw the mighty works of Jesus more than anyone else. And for the most part, they refused to repent. And Jesus, being very clear and very plain with them, he says, in the day of judgment, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon would be much better off. Whoa, what a statement. So I have to ask a question. Was that true? Is that true? Yes or no? Yes. It's the word of God. And they, I'm certain they wouldn't have believed that. How in the world can you say that? Those horrible cities compared to us? Well, it was true. Now, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but neither John the Baptist nor did Jesus Christ gloss over sin. They never excused it. And the fact of the matter, he didn't look the other way. He confronted them with their sins. Now, folks, we must never forget our God is sovereign, which means what? He's in charge, and he does what? Whatever he wants to, whenever he wants to. So he's sovereign also in the distribution of his gifts. And we're not going to turn there, but you'll see that in 1 Corinthians 12. I spelled that very good there. Uh, not what we want, but what God's sovereign in doing. But here's the thing. We talked about this last week. We even read a verse from Luke. We're not going to do that tonight. But the Bible says that whoever's been given much is going to be required what? Much. Don't miss that statement. Because the greater our opportunity the greater our obligation is going to be. The stronger the incentive we have to repent, the more horrible lack of repentance becomes, and the more severe judgment will be on our life. Remember, to whom much is given, much is required. So Jesus comes to this world to give out blessing, but whenever we reject him, Whenever we despise his person, when his authority is rejected, when it, we, we kind of smirk at his mercies, then, like he did these cities, he'll pronounce a woe on our lives. And my friend, one thing, that's one thing you don't want to hear. We don't want that to happen in our lives. So Christ is addressing these cities. They had a great advantage. And because they had a great advantage, there was a fearful doom waiting on those who missed that opportunity after God had shown them so much. Now, again, uh, in a lot of our churches in America today, of America today, how much do we hear preached on judgment? 
None, almost none. There are a few out there that do it, but most simply refuse to do that. That brings us down to verse 25 and 26, Matthew 11. Anybody want to read that, please? Are you in Matthew 11, 25 through 28? I'm sorry, 25 through 26, I'm sorry. Okay, again, let me remind you, and I know we're reading these verses separate, but they are not separate. There is a correlation of what Jesus says in verse 25 and 26, directly connected to the previous verses. And we can't miss that. Now, again, he rebuked those cities. Uh, in fact, most of the culture in that day, because he said John came preaching one thing, and I preached the same thing, you called him a demon possessed, you said, I was a wine, bibber, and a glutton. So for the most part, they rejected it. He focuses primarily on a couple of cities there in the northern part of Israel, where he did most of his works, while miracles while on this earth. And so <laughs> he realizes that for a lot of people, every, combine all the good works that he did, and for the most part, what kind of effect did it have on people? Say it again, Dad. Yeah, little effect. You know, in fact, it was so bad at one point in John's Gospel, I don't remember the exact verse, but Jesus, if you don't believe my words, at least believe my works. And so he comes to a point here in Matthew 11, and he realizes that the majority of his good works had resulted in very little, and for the most part, no effect on those who saw them, and they remained and refused to repent. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus saw this, and it broke his heart. It broke his heart. Now, let me remind you about our God in a way of a question. Does God, the God of the Bible, not the one people make up, but the God of Scripture, does He rejoice in judgment? No. Thank you, Phyllis. You didn't hesitate. He absolutely does not rejoice in judgment. So even though Christ pronounces a woe on these cities, that area, Make no mistake about it, it broke his heart. How many know, if you haven't realized it, you will, that a lot of times when we look this way in our world, horizontally, there's not much to rejoice about. Isn't that true? Not much to be excited about. And Christ has been looking horizontally, beginning with those in general of the other Jews, and focusing to northern Israel, Capernaum, Bethsaida, 
<laughs> and so now his heart is broken. And folks, don't miss this. In verse 25, he looks away from then, and guess where he looks to? He looks to God. He looks to God. He looks away from earth, and he looks toward heaven. If we're going to find hope and comfort, where do we need to look? To the world? Yeah. We have to look to heaven. Now we have, for the most part, if you put, this is our third week, put it all together, we kind of covered almost verse by verse up to this point of Matthew 11. And then verse 25, it says, at that time, Jesus answered. And I thought about that. I don't see a question here. But you know what he's answering? The dilemma of what he saw here on earth. Now don't miss that. And so he looks away from earth. He looks to heaven. And what he could not find here, consolation on earth, he finds consolation in the sovereignty of God. Folks, don't miss that. But also understand his consolation is in the absolute security of the covenant God made with Israel. Don't miss that either. When men refuse to be faithful, guess what God was going to do? He'll be faithful. And Jesus looks away from this mess on earth and he looks to heaven. And he finds consolation. He moves from rebuking the lack of repentance of men. And he turns to give thanks to God. So the problem in his earth was lack of repentance. And he gives thanks to the Father... Because he realizes God is the only answer to this problem. Matthew Henry said this about that verse. He said this. It's called an answer, though. No other words are found recorded but his own. Because it is so comfortable a reply to the melancholy consideration preceding it. And it is aptly set in the balance against them. You ever thought it can't get any worse than this? And by the time you do, what happens? It gets worse. But understand something. No matter how bad it gets, is God out of control? Never. And Jesus turns to the sovereignty of God. Now let me give... All of us a word of warning because the danger is going from one extreme to the other. And one thing I've learned about theology, try to keep your ship out of the ditches, okay? And we think about those in the day of Jesus, and even today, 
They want to substitute a sentimental Christ for the true Christ. They want to make a God that they can design, a God they can control, a sentimental God, a sentimental Christ. And that's wrong. But also understand, as strong as and solemn as these words were about the woe pronounced on these cities, don't you think for a moment that Christ is without feeling? Don't you think for a moment that he's a stoical Christ? Cold and heartless, because my friend, that is not the Christ of the Bible. You been reading my notes? That's where I'm. You're right. He is now. By the way, God has created us as passionate people. He has, but how many know that sin has affected that too? Um, you ever have bad thoughts about people? I, I finally cooled off a little bit about this, but um, Sandy, I talked to your dad about it years ago too, because he and I agreed on, on at least a couple of things. But one thing was, we thought it would be nice to have a cannon mounted on top of the hood of our car. And that way the guy in front of us was too slow, pushed a button, boom, they're gone, right? Can you hear your dad saying that, Sandy? Okay. We are, he and I did that talk. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but you know, listen, sure we're passionate people. We have feelings. But sin has marred that. And, and Phyllis, you're right. No one cares for us like Jesus does. No one hurts to the depth that Jesus hurts. And please understand, he take he takes no pleasure in judgment. He didn't take pleasure in pronouncing these woes upon these cities in northern Israel. And here's what's interesting. Now again, I know we're kind of beating this to death. Maybe was was Christ human or was he God? He was both. Okay, was he perfect human or perfect God? He was both perfect in every way. So being the perfect human. Phyllis, you're right. His desires, his care goes far deeper than ours ever could. He was not tainted by sin. So he's capable of a lot deeper feelings than we are. So make no mistake about it. He was not stoic or indifferent. He cared about those people. And we have to understand, Jesus was not unaffected by grief. And even when he pronounced doom on those cities, and he didn't look at them with a fatalistic indifference, as he looked to heaven and found comfort in the sovereignty of God. Luke 19, verse 41 gives an example. Thank you, Dan. This is the city of Jerusalem. And if any city deserved woe, who did? Jerusalem. 
And he came near, and what did he do? He wept. Why? He was broken. He was grieved. And he knew, without repentance, they were going to face the judgment of God. And it broke his heart. And that's why when we're studying God's Word, not only do we need to understand the context, but we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. How many know that most cults start out by pulling out one verse of the Bible and two verses out of the Bible? Marvin and I, in one of our discussions recently, we talked about preparing sermons. And the danger is, I know Marvin agrees, it would get an idea and try to get verses to match it. <laughs> we need to begin with the Word of God. We must begin with the Word of God. And so when we compare Scripture with Scripture, when we compare what Jesus said there in our text tonight, in Matthew 11, and we see what happened in, Matt, in Luke 19, we find out that Christ... He wept over Jerusalem. And that tells me he would not be unmoved when he considered what was waiting for Capernaum and those other cities. Isaiah, we don't have the verse in our notes tonight, in chapter 53 said he was a man of sorrows. What's that mean? He knew what it felt like to grieve. And that precludes any concept oh yeah yes amen so well said and when will, he, when will he stop loving people never his love is deep and it's wide you see, Christ wept and he weeps today over any who perish over their sins. It's not what he wanted. When we study the writings of Paul, you can't help but miss the grief he has and the sorrow over his fellow Jews that have not come to know Christ. He realized they weren't pleasing to God. He realized they had a zeal, but in the wrong direction. And it broke his heart. In fact, you know how much Paul loved the Jews? He said, if it would help, if I thought it would save them, I would allow myself to become a curse that they might be saved. You know what that means? I would go to hell for them. I would, I would be eternally lost if I thought it would save the Jews. Now, I think sometimes, I don't know, if I, I'm guilty of it, you read Paul and you think he's never, you know, he's always stoic and hard-hearted. He's not. He had a passion for those around him. So tonight I would ask us a question. Because I believe God's Word is contemporary no matter what age we live in. Aren't you glad for grace today? Aren't you thankful for that? But let us never forget Thank God for your grace, for his grace. Thank him that we're saved. But my friend, I pray we will never stop being heartbroken over the lost. 
Because if they die and go to hell, how long will that be? For eternity. And our prayer ought to be every day, Lord, that some way and somehow break their heart, open their eyes, whatever it takes, that they might be brought into the saving knowledge of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died for their sins. Now, here's what's interesting. First of all, uh, we have the Old and New Testament, right? Which one's, the, which one's the Word of God? Both of them are, okay. But how many know the Old Testament points to Jesus? And Jesus came to bring the truth to the Jews. And he came to show that God is true to his promises. Now, by the way, in case you don't know this, I'm sure that you do. But God made a promise to Abraham, and guess who fulfilled that promise in, 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 in completely? It was Jesus. He's the only one who could. And at the same time, Christ came to show the truth to the Jews, to show them that God was, in fact, true to his promises. At the same time, he came so that the Gentiles could glorify God for his mercy. What a Savior. And the sad thing is, we can talk about the Jews all we want. The majority of them have rejected Christ. But what about the majority of the Gentiles? They have too. And guess which group Jesus came to save? All of them. And they all reject him. And by the way... Even here in Matthew 11, the Lord Jesus Christ is brokenhearted. Brokenhearted to the lack of response of all that he did. That goes back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 49, look at verse 4. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. What does that look like? What does that sound like? Everything I've done. The extreme he went to. But then there's a word yet. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord. And that's how he, he comforts himself in the last part of that verse. Surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work, and that means my reward, is with God. If you're like me in my, in my walk with God, <coughs> there have been times when I've witnessed to people. And again, I don't mean to harp on this, but my dad's going to be saved. And and my dad and I worked together for many years. We had our own business together. And I have shared the faith with him quite a few times through the years. But there have been times that I've asked myself and asked the Lord, what have I done wrong? After all these years and, and, and the way I've lived my life, 
Now, I made a mistake. I don't think I lived it perfect. Um, but I know that my dad saw things in my life that he never saw anybody else. Good things, consistent things. And there have been times I've asked, Lord, what is it I'm doing wrong? Well, let me stop for a moment. And I'm sure there would be some things that God would tell me. But what if Jesus said that day to his father, what have I done wrong? What would be the answer? Nothing. And I realized, I realized that. I finally came to a plate and realized that. Thank you, Phyllis. But here's what's interesting, folks. The perfect son of God found comfort, not in the people around him, but in the sovereignty of his God. And so it's kind of interesting, there in Isaiah, in the language of the prophecy of Isaiah there, and here in Matthew 11, Jesus, and they both of them found relief from discouragements, by retreating into the divine sovereignty of God. And my friend, that's where you find it. Again, look at 11, 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, so it seemed good in thy sight. Now notice, first of all, we're not to our text yet, verse 28 through 30. But in those two verses, Jesus, in four different details, refers to the sovereignty of God. First of all, in verse 25, he prays, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. What does that mean? Yeah. Would you agree he's the proprietor? He is Lord of heaven and earth. Daniel 4.35. All right, Jason, basically what's that verse telling us? God does what? What do you want you to do? <laughs> now think about this. He does according to his will in heaven, but he also does according to his will on this earth. And we have to remember that, especially when it looks like Satan is master of the lower sphere. But remember, not only is God the boss in heaven, guess what? He's a boss on earth. <laughs> yeah, that's it. We studied Job some a couple of years ago, and we found that uh, Satan is on God's leash. He goes as far as God lets him. So number one, 
he refers to the sovereignty of God, he saw his father as Lord of heaven and earth. Number two, he affirmed that yes, some things are hid from the wise and the prudent. Look at verse 25 again. Because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. <laughs> now, I want to suggest tonight that this verse is referring to those who think they are wise and prudent. Because truly, the only wise people are those who turn to Christ. But Jesus affirms the fact. He agrees that God has chosen to reveal these to babes. You see, the problem with most of the Pharisees was not the fact they were religious. The problem was they were self-sufficient. Hey, we can do this on our own. We can cross all the T's and dot all the I's. We can keep all the commands. But what was wrong with that idea? Yeah, too much pride. They couldn't do it. They simply couldn't. And so because they were self-sufficient in their own eyes, because they were self-complacent, it left them in darkness. And they missed the Lord of glory. The third thing he clarifies about God's sovereignty, he, revealed, he hid it from the prudent and the wise, but according to verse 25, he has revealed them unto babes. Now think about that one. Do you remember the time, I know you do, in John 9, when Jesus healed a blind man? And the Pharisees called him before them, and he explains to them what had happened. And uh, they consult for a while, and they come back to tell us again. He said, why? Do you want to also become one of his disciples? How do you think that felt? <laughs> Touche, right? And they made him angry. Who do you think you are? Trying to teach us, implying you're just a babe. You're insignificant. But who did Jesus come to? People just. He came for everybody. But those in that position reached out to him. So reserved for babes. But also understand, <clears throat> Jesus states very clearly, this was good in the eyes of God. Look at verse 26. Even so, Father... So it seemed good in thy sight. Wow. Whatever God does is what? It's good. But what if I don't like it? It's still What if I don't agree with it? It's still good. And Jesus said, Lord, I realize you hid it from the, from the wise and the prudent of this world. You've revealed it to babes. Lord, I also realize in your sight it is good. And please understand, 
It's only through the effectual operation of the Holy Spirit that those who are helping their own eyes discover that truth. And it's revealed to them. And Jesus agreed. Lord, I agree. It is good in your sight. Matthew eleven twenty seven. Somebody got that? Want to read it? Okay, we're getting closer to our text. We'll make it tonight. But now Jesus makes some remarkable statements here. And again, we cannot unhitch this from the previous verses. And so we saw the sovereignty of divine grace in verses 25 and 26. And we're going to see the communication of that grace through Christ in verse 28 through 30. But here in verse 27, he clarifies the relationship he has with the Father he spoke about in verse 25. And make no mistake about it. Jesus makes three clear claims to the special relationship he has with God. Number one, he says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. What does God know? Everything. What does Jesus know? So we have shared knowledge. What secrets does God keep from his son? None. Never has, never will. Now this is, in the original language, a present perfect tense. And when Jesus had been committed, that means from eternity to past to eternity to future. It'll never change. Jesus is the only source of the revelation. That is hidden or revealed. God kept no secret from him. The second thing claim he makes there in verse 27. says, no man knoweth the son, but the father. Neither knoweth neither, neither any man the father except the son. Now keep in mind, the word know in the Old Testament always meant more than knowledge. The idea of the word know was to express an intimate relationship. A very intimate relationship. And the communion between God the Father and God the Son is the core of their relationship. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus claimed... And hear me well, an intimate relation with God that no one else could ever have. Now remember, we are all sons of God. We've been adopted to the family of God. But Jesus claimed a unique relationship from eternity past 
to eternity future. Now, by the way, there are many who claim or make the claim that Christ is nothing more than a great teacher. But this verse says more than that. He is God. The third thing he stated, that no one knows the Father except the Son and those who the Son chooses to reveal them. Now think about this. Why do we love God? Because of what? He first loved us. And please understand, Paul was right when he quoted the, from the book of Psalms, no one seeks after God. Guess who came looking for us? God did. And so if we're going to know God, God must reveal himself through his son. Aren't you glad that God did? And we can truly know the truth. And we can know him. And by the way, it's not in our text tonight. How many ways to God are there? One. Who is that? How you know that? John fourteen six. Know the name given among men. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's John fourteen six. Now, by the way, in our text tonight, verse 26, Jesus, give God praise for that. And he says that God had given him, the Son, that authority. How much time we got left here? Just a minute here. Let me, let me explain something here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Which one is God? All three. Which one is most God? all equal. But how many know there are different offices? Okay? And I, I don't, I'm, I want to be careful because I want to be blasphemous here and don't take it the wrong way. But inferior in office, Christ's nature and dignity is the same with the fathers. Now remember, hear, hear me well. <clears throat> How long has Christ existed? Forever. How long has he been flesh? Approximately. Well, more than that now, 2,000 years, okay? Yeah, I know what you meant. He lived here 33 and a half years, yeah. Yeah. And so... Christ, his office is mediator. Now remember, is that the office of God? No. The office of the Holy Spirit? No, it's the office of Christ. And so, as a mediator, Christ receives all men from the Father. But he's not just mediator, he's also God in every way, equal to the Father, in his incomprehensible person. And so please understand, how, in what context is Christ giving that invitation? He's giving it as our mediator. 
Okay, absolutely. He's the only one could qualify, and he qualifies, and he makes an invitation. Yeah, absolutely. So the context of Matthew 11 reveals these characters of Christ. First of all, he was the one who rebuked those who refused to repent. He's also the one who pronounced woes upon those who weren't moved by his works. He's also the announcer of a day of judgment. (laughs) And it won't be good. He also affirms the sovereignty of God. He's also the mediator of the covenant as a son co-equal with the father. He's also the one by whom the Father is revealed. And it's that one who gives the invitation, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. How many are glad you came? Amen. We're not done yet, okay? We'll pick it up there and next week. Let's stop right now and take a few moments for a prayer.